1: Welcome to U-Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Toby Miller to talk about violence, which is his latest book. Um, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me, and congratulations not only on your own work in general, but specifically this podcast.
1: Oh, thanks very much. And, uh, it's, it's great to have you um, on. It's great to kind of catch you at a moment um, where you're in the middle of uh, intervening, I think, in, in some incredibly... Um, contemporary and and really sort of urgent um, issues. And the book on violence, I I think, does that really, really well. And obviously, you know, we're going to talk about the various themes that are in the book, but I'm intrigued as to why you decided to write about uh, violence. Why did you think we needed uh, a, a book on it? Why this intervention now?
0: So I spent most of my life in the Global North, as a straightish whitish maleish subject, an implicit and sometimes explicit beneficiary of everything from hegemonic masculinity to imperialism and colonialism. Over the last few years, I've been living in Latin America, specifically in Colombia and now Mexico, where these things have different sets of meanings, consequences and impacts from those in the global north. So when I was in Colombia, I wrote my previous book, which is called The Persistence of Violence, trying to explain its chaotic, conflictual history from the perspective of a culturalist approach whilst also employing political economy and so on. One of the things that the readers of that book for the publisher said was, you've left out religion, (laughs) I realized that, I shouldn't laugh, but I mean, I realized this was another flaw deriving from my worldview and my background, which is determinately secular and one that is still caught up in the unfortunately incorrect notion of the uh, loss of enchantment of the world, the disenchantment of the world and the rise of secularism. Moving on to Mexico, after I tried to adjust for this in terms of the religious elements addressed in The Persistence of Violence about Colombia. Moving on to living here, where violence is everywhere and every day present in nearly everyone's life, other than the uber elite, I realised that I needed to try to come to terms with the phenomenon of violence, if you can even use it as a, a unitary concept, in a much more general way. And I really wanted to pick up on what I'd learned in and from Colombia and the fantastic intellectual culture that exists there, some of which you know about firsthand, Dave, in order to try to understand these things more generally. And I felt I could blend them with the things I was learning in Mexico. So that was the stimulus, really.
1: I mean, even then, you've sketched out a huge kind of range of topics and um a huge range of, of possibilities for um the process of, of writing the book at the same time it, it strikes me that i guess you had to make some decisions about what to include and what not to include and the comments about you know sort of having your worldview uh challenged both by uh the readers of, of, of the manuscript but also um by by the places you've been writing the book in come through quite quite clearly in the book and actually that there's quite a lot of discussion of the Latin American context alongside um, more kind of classic um, cultural studies uh, examples and, and cultural studies approaches. And, and the other thing in, in terms of, I suppose, your decision to kind of write the book, and you mentioned it being shaped by um, a particular context, is why the kind of the approach in cultural studies, um, why do we need, I guess, a kind of a cultural studies blended with political economy and bits of criminology and psychology as well, but why that primarily cultural studies approach?
0: Good question, Dave, since I guess cultural studies is dying, a rather rapid, probably pain-free demise. I guess that I thought that some of the work that had been done in cultural studies to try to break down disciplinary boundaries were still worth doing under that rubric, specifically the trinity that matters to me, which is political economy, ethnography, and textual analysis, but in a way that would be even broader and would try to host discussions all too rarely held between psychology, social psychology, critical psychology and critical social psychology, criminology, and cultural criminology. All areas, which, as you are well aware, have things to say about violence, all of value, but rarely actually put into dialogue. And I thought that, no doubt in a rather amateurish way, as a friendly critic, I could try to stage such discussions. So it was really about an impulse towards interdisciplinarity, towards saying, here's this word violence that at some level... All of us can understand. We know what it means. And yet, when you dig a little deeper, it is the subject of immense contestation, both chronologically and geographically, and in disciplinary terms, is subject to often almost entirely incommensurate ways of thinking. Was there a form in which I could bring some of these things together?
1: You've sort of preempted one of the things I was going to ask. and. It's interesting you mention, you know, it's this word or it's this term, this um, idea that we all kind of intuitively know what it means. But one of the things the book does uh, right at the start is is to, as you mentioned, you know, challenge that perception. It tries to think through how we measure it. Um, Obviously, you know, in contemporary um, English-speaking media debates, there are various interventions, um, you know, mostly from um, the kind of, um, I suppose, people who are playing at being anthropologists about, you know, whether society is more or less violent now than, than it used to be. Um, and I guess, you know, it would be good to get a sense of, of how we define violence, how you, I suppose, kind of, you know, are cautious about um, taking it for granted and, and how you, you know, try and think through um, the extent to which many of the, you know, kind of violent aspects of contemporary society are just completely missed um, in in the way that we define it and try and capture it.
0: Yes, well, I think you've really put into play some key issues. Uh, There's a famous thing called the Miller case in the Supreme Court in the United States from the early 70s about pornography, when it was deemed something that could not be defined textually, but we all know it when we see it. And when one looks at the numerous definitions of violence, as I said, both chronologically and geographically, you realise just how much they've changed. So, of course, there is the notion of interpersonal violence, a physical assault on another person's bodily integrity. There is national violence, the work of nation-states in wars against one another or civil wars where large numbers of organised groups are in conflict with one another, generally over territory and government, but often, of course, over natural resources. But nowadays, the United Nations, Amnesty International, many other entities also look at verbal violence, at threats, and the impact this can have on people's life chances. And they look at the violence done environmentally and the impact that can have on the capacity to survive and thrive of entire peoples. In addition to those differences, I mentioned geography. For instance, in the Caribbean, Different states have different definitions of domestic violence or gendered violence. In many instances, this is regarded in the same way as you or I might regard it, domestic violence as being violence done involving children, other family members, and often particularly violence done by men to their partners, especially female partners, and so on. But in uh, many parts of the Caribbean, many parts of the world, This is about something that is done by a husband to a wife and nothing else, just to give one instance. In Colombia, there are parts of the civil code that absolutely endorse violence done by parents to control children. And if you look historically, this is something in schools and in families in Britain, for instance, that was absolutely accepted not that long ago. So there are all these changes that come about in terms of how to define it, what it is, and that means that the statistics are very, very difficult to come by. When I was looking at domestic violence statistics in many parts of the world, I found that I needed to look for some kind of congruity between legal stats governmental stats and non-government organisational third sector stats if i could get a correspondence that really showed some overlap in terms of definitions and numbers then i felt confident but much of the time that simply wasn't there another example from the united states you know the justice department the bureau of justice statistics which is its crazy academic arm and very good the fbi and local police forces have really different numbers about acts of violence and their juridical history. Similarly, if you go back in history in the United States, information about Native American and African American suffering of violence is much less well-represented than is the case with other groups. And finally, and very relevant, of course, in the current conjuncture, statistics held by local police forces about violence done by police officers, are absolutely scanty and in many cases not existent in the US. You need to rely on bodies like the Bureau of Justice Statistics and the FBI to have a clue about what's going on. So what appears to be a word that has an obvious meaning, in fact, is a word that is very difficult to be certain of when used in contexts like hate speech like what is intimate partner or domestic violence? What is the violence done to various groups? What is the violence done to the earth? What is the violence done by police officers?
1: The geography stuff is is particularly intriguing, and in the middle of the book, you you sort of I wouldn't say you, you counterpose, but but you think through a series of examples um, of the intersection of particular ideas of violence, particular places like, as you've mentioned, the Latin American context, and then questions about um, gender as a, as a framework for kind of understanding this and, and indeed for, for living it. And I, I wonder if this, you know, the readers will get it when they they read the book, but it probably sounds like a strange question. What the kind of, you know, the Latin American context ideas about masculinity and then James Bond kind of say to each other uh, in the context for how we might understand uh, gender and violence?
0: I think there are really two key levels to feminist critiques of violence or engagements with violence. One is the interpersonal one that I've described, the fact that so many women in so many parts of the world on so many occasions have to look around them, be enormously conscious of the environment that they're in take difficult choices about everything from how to enjoy yourself to how to transport yourself from one place to another and also worry about the men in most cases that they marry or live with or have as children that there's that element that is absolutely constitutive of daily life there's a another element of feminist critique, which is about international relations. It's about war and the domination of international politics and of war in all its horror by men. Even as women are frequently very important symbolically in claims about why wars take place, defending women's honour, defending their sanctity, liberating them from oppressive conditions, arguments the British have made for centuries and How About Afghanistan, for example, or uh, whether it's about engaging in sexual violence during war, particularly rape, in order to take women as signifiers of plunder. So I think those two elements have been absolutely crucial. Now, having said that, there are obviously elements of violence in the popular that appeal to many of us, frequently including women. And, you know, I think Shakespeare and Dashiel Hammett and Raymond Chandler are three of the greatest contributors to the English language. You don't get a lot of Chandler, Hammett or Shakespeare without violence. James Bond, whom you reference, is... Um, along with God, and I run the risk of John Lennon in the 60s here, probably the most significant, consistent presence connected to violence in the popular world that we have in that it's been 70 years since the books, the comic strips and then the movies started coming out. And there you have this extraordinary mixture of, on the one hand, this almost super male figure in his beauty, his hyper masculinity, his strength, his use of technology, his, in a sense, incarnation of a departing British imperialism, mixed with someone whose body is constantly torn apart, nearly killed, his beautiful clothes are routinely wrecked, a person who doesn't really understand much of the technology that he's using, and who, in that sense, incarnates not only the nostalgia for the British Empire, but a sense of Britain's failure again and again, even as he also represents not just the British government, but a vigilante masculinity. And yet, through all that horror and that sense of loss, loss of the strong, hard male body, loss of... British importance in the world, he is of immense appeal across cultures, across ages, as some kind of iconic figure. And I think it's to do with this mixture of a seemingly unconquerable masculinity and constant failure. And I think there's a dialectic there that there is a lot There's a lot in that dialectic, that oscillation between male power and male impotence, and I choose the word carefully, if not advisedly, that oscillation is a crucial element to the constant failures of masculinity in daily life. And I think that's part of the appeal, along with the fact that they keep picking good-looking guys to act in the part.
1: I mean, it's really striking, actually, within that discussion that you do raise, you know, various kind of critical interventions that have stressed bond could never be a woman because of the various, as you've described, you know, kind of characteristics that are attached to bond, but also at the same time, the um, I suppose the baggage, the negatives um, that are attached to to masculinity as well. And and I was struck actually by um, similar kind of moments um, in the book of not ambivalency exactly but you know you've got a discussion of sports quite early on in the book where you know i mean particularly in the context of the united states you've got these incredibly violent uh, dangerous sports um that you know characterize kind of american society both you know now and, and historically but also you know you have i, I guess a kind of a qualified uh, defense of sports as well even within you know the kind of uh, the recognition of its um, nature as a kind of an arena for violence.
0: Well, I guess just a quick thing on Bond could not be a woman. The the people who carry that fire, that flame, most assiduously and recklessly, are far right U.S. critics and some critics in Britain. So, I was, yeah, the
1: British are not uh, you know right? immune the, from that. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's the Daily Mail, it's the Tory graph in Britain, and it's American Conservative and Breitbart and their ilk in the United States, where there is this extraordinary anxiety slash investment in Bond not changing, despite all the changes he's gone through. But to get to your point about sports, Dave, which is an important one, as you know... Essentialist arguments, particularly about adolescent masculinity, within both psychology and functionalism, to the extent that they're different, argue that hormonally men are predisposed when they haven't been fully civilized by state and society and family towards violence, and that this can be directed into the sporting arena in order to not denature it, but reorder it, reorganize it, you know. Being, into, being on the court keeps you out of court, is an old basketball saying in the United States. And there is this, that notion that's very powerful in schools and everywhere else in many parts of the world, that this is a crucial function of sports. If you look back at the history of their codification, there is certainly a case to be made that in many instances, what we think of today as the world's major sports emerged as working class pastimes, quite disorderly, not very codified, quite violent, quite joyous, sometimes connected to warlike activities. You know, think of boxing, wrestling, archery, javelin, and then think of sports that are, I guess, more significant nowadays in the world, most notably football or association football or soccer. But um, the key element here is that these sports, whether their codification has helped to pacify masculinity or not, they are sports that have emerged from below, from the working class, often in these disorganized, resistive formats that, yes, have been Governmentalized and commodified, look at the world of US pro sports, whether it's hockey or basketball or baseball or men running around in helmets with armor on. <laughs> that even when those things have been so heavily governmentalized and commodified and essentially tools of the Republican Party, in the case of uh, football, uh, NFL football, and golf they still retain many of the the senses of urgency, connectedness and locality even that arose from what sports originally were. You know, if you think about the notion of the Derby in British sports, Birmingham City versus Aston Villa, Tranmere versus Everton would be the most famous one, I guess, Dave. Would that be correct?
1: (laughs) Something like that.
0: Something like that. Yeah, I'm not going to say the L word at this point. I'll leave that up to you. But um, those derbies are about intensely local senses of where you're from, whom you represent, and a notion of pride in those origins, all of which get invested into your football team. And to be serious, the most important one here is, of course, in British context, Liverpool versus Everton. And even though... Um, Liverpool Football Club has not been owned by anybody local for a very long time, and even though it's very rare that its top players have any connection historically in familial terms to Liverpool, that investment is terribly real and very important. Now, the, the violent side to this, of course, can be, and I'm not thinking of these derbies in particular, but it is frequently the case that along with the nostalgia for a pre governmentalized pre-commodified world of sports, there is a nostalgia for what is seen as the real world of football, which is the world of, in inverted commas, hard men. And here you would think of players like uh, Norman Bites Your Ankles, Hunter from Leeds United, or Ron Chopper Harris from Chelsea from when I was a young Boy, guys whose job was to hurt the opposition against the, the rules and who were held up and are still held up as exemplars of real men, real football. Now, in addition to all the negative aspects of governmentalization and commodification, that kind of masculinity, which I regard as entirely destructive, whatever the actual men themselves may have been like, continues to be revered by many fans, and that residual component, not the romance of loving your town or loving your part of town, loving your team, but loving the so-called hard man, is, I think, one of the truly negative sides to sports because of its connectedness to hegemonic masculinity. I mean... There's
1: so many other things actually we could get into from that. And again, you know, themes that run through the book, even as you're talking about things like the nature of uh, the nation state, for example, um, or, you know, questions uh, that are about, you know, understanding the kind of psychology and psychological effects of violence. But we should probably not end without some engagement with uh, one of the final chapters in the book, which is about the media, Um, not just because of the, Um, examples we talked about, which are, you know, kind of crucially mediated or or indeed, um, in the case of James Bond, almost, you know, kind of um, have their status because of their um, nature as, you know, contemporary media products, Um, but also I I guess you you try and engage again in these, these two ways, one thinking about things like how violence is um, kind of constructed, reported um, how it's, you know, kind of brought into view and also by thinking through, I guess what used to be called, you know, the kind of media effects um, literature, as well as blending in discussion of things like the telenovela from uh, the the Latin American context. So uh, as a way of kind of starting to wrap up, what, I suppose, is the kind of um, the media story when we're thinking about violence.
0: Generally, as you've adumbrated, this is understood in terms of media effects. In other words, show Johnny or Jane people being violent or having sex or both, and they will go out and commit violent crimes have sex, and combine them. It's not generally quite as immediate as that, but essentially that's the debate. And it is ongoing, particularly in the United States. As soon as another young white religious male kills lots of other people, we are told, first of all, that he was a family man, that he was a Christian, that he was well-respected, and then... We look at the electronic games he played, the sites he visited, or 20 years ago, the videos that he rented. And it is still the case that you can get published in communications journals and psychology journals in the United States with your study of a 1,000 undergraduate psychology students doing 101 at an unnamed university in the Midwest who are subjected to violent themes in the media and then have their bodies monitored and their thoughts questioned in order to judge these effects. It seems to me that that line of inquiry will never cease. And basically what it tends to show is that when people have a predisposition to violence, these things can be triggered by media events. You see this with copycat suicides, as they're called, by young people in South Korea and Japan after politicians or popular culture icons have done this, the so-called Marilyn Monroe effect, following her suicide, if it was suicide, in the early 60s. But that debate goes on. There are Lots and lots of other studies with a 1,000 undergraduates at an unnamed university in the Midwest that suggest there is no great correlation. The studies have been happening for almost a century now since the Payne Fund put money into them in the late 20s in the US and they won't stop. But there's another side to this, which is the violence done to journalists. This is a very big issue. If you read most English language newspapers, then you read about this generally in the light of the so-called heroic war correspondent who goes to a country where he can't speak the language, doesn't know the religion, has never lived and is injured or killed along with their interpreter and or camera operator. These are indeed tragic events, but they're a minuscule representation of violence done to journalists, most journalists who are threatened, injured and or killed are threatened, injured and or killed in the countries where they were born, grew up and work and often in the cities or villages where they did so. This is because there are still elements of journalism, if you forget about so much of what happens in the Anglosphere, that treat very complicated social questions very seriously, get on the wrong side of history and get punished. A lot of this is very gendered in many parts of the world, but not only gendered. And a lot of the time it's because in a small town, the newspaper that comes out once a week is on the wrong side of organized crime or it's on the right side of organized crime and then another organized crime movement comes into town and takes over and burns down the building and kills everybody so uh, there is this element of threats to trying to tell on the ground truth that is a core element of media violence and generally left unaddressed by books articles popular discussion of the relationship between the media and violence. And then there is this telenovela component. In particular, the telenovelas that are called narco-novelas, which are made in Brazil, in Colombia, here in Mexico, in many other parts of the world, and are successful exports elsewhere. Many, many, many of these narco novellas are directed at what in Latin America are called the popular classes, which means the poor, essentially. People in the informal sector, who often make up, you know, two-thirds of the labor force here. Um, People in the industrial proletariat, such as it is people who are leading subsistence lives uh, if they have television. And... Unsurprisingly, there is a glamorization of ways out of the mire of daily life for these deeply oppressed people who are oppressed in class, race and gender terms. What is the way out? Well, think back, Dave, not that you or even I were alive, to the 30s and Warner Brothers gangster movies where for the Irish, Italian or Jewish immigrant working class gangsterism, was a way out of the mire. Now, it got beaten down in most of those movies, but there was a social conscience element to explaining why young men would become gangsters. The narco novellas sometimes have an etiology about why people become what they become, but much of the time they glamorise bling, plastic surgery for women to conform to very specific and essentially naturally unattainable physical goals, and violence. And they are phenomenally popular. They have been for decades, and that doesn't end. Not only narco novellas, but also narco-music, um, increasingly shows on YouTube and affiliated... or Sorry, associated entities where young men boast of their violent exploits and so on. This is a really monumental element in the incarnation of violence and its legitimation in societies of desperation. It is, and societies that were, as are so many nation states, born from from violence. There is no attempt particularly in countries that don't have a public broadcasting tradition, like, say, the the BBC, there is no attempt to provide countervailing narratives about arguing when violence is justified or not, that provide historical narratives that map out effectively, if controversially, national mythologies of violence, or that look at other kinds of ways in which social mobility may exist. Some of this is about the classic capitalist television idea. Why change it if it's not broken? You don't innovate if you don't have to. If you have a successful genre, stick with it. And some of it is about the fact that it is frequently the case that public faith in government is so low in societies where these genres are popular, where corruption is so rife, where clientelism is a way of existence, that the notion that you could tell a story in which there were lots of good cops or there were incorruptible journalists or there were public servants dedicated to the common wheel is patently absurd. And so this story of get ahead any way you can becomes enormously appealing. Let me finish with, with one story from a Russia Today documentary. Now, Russia Today has many problems, in my opinion, particularly when it reports on Russia, but also when it reports on some elements of life in the United States. It made a very, very telling ethnographic-style documentary about Popeye, which is just how the Spanish speakers pronounce Popeye, a sicario or hitman for Pablo Escobar, who was personally responsible for upwards of 350 killings, both ordering them and executing people, was let out of jail after 20 years because he was only convicted of one such killing. And Russia today got him to walk around Medellin, the town where he had done this as Escobar's right-hand assassin, to meet victims or survivors, Children of men he'd killed, a policewoman who'd had an arm blown off, and so on. In amongst all of this, he had started a YouTube channel which immediately, which was all about how to kill people, had a million subscribers. In amongst all of this, the camera also follows him around the popular sectors of Medellin big working class and informal sector in amongst what is 50% a middle class city. And he was mobbed as an heroic figure by hundreds of people in the street. It's well worth watching this documentary. So there is something there about recognising that the state has failed you, is completely untrustworthy and not untrustworthy like Alexander Boris de Pfeffel Johnson, untrustworthy like is going to take you out and shoot you or imprison you for no reason. The state is completely untrustworthy. The major organs of civil society are too. Oligarchs and oligopolists run everything. There is no hope out of this except through violent crime. And that glamorization is both a media event, and an underlying reality for many people. That's the tragedy for me of the media section of the book, that it feels as though violence, which so often has proven important for the dramatisation of historical events, I go back to Shakespeare, but one could look at many other, in inverted commas, great writers, and through that incarnation, can tell us a lot about history. But it is also a place for the glamorization of appalling assaults on human dignity. And to finish up, it's those assaults on human dignity that I think now come to be the core of contemporary definitions of violence. That, yes, it is about physical attacks on the bodily integrity of persons, but, yes, It is also about the demeaning of their subjectivity, of their personhood, and how that can derive from, involve, and lead to physical assault.
1: I mean, that's a brilliant end point for our discussion and, and, and a fantastic way to loop back to where we started talking about definitions, and it strikes me that there are several research agendas uh, that could come out of the book. You know, several um, <clears throat> lines of both, you know, kind of empirical and, and theoretical um, ways forward. And is that something you're going to be pursuing? Are you um, going to be doing further work on violence? Um, I know you've got um, a new book coming out um, about the coronavirus uh, moment. Um, is that? you know, part of this kind of agenda or are you going to be switching to something completely different?
0: The new book that's just about to come out is called A COVID Charter, A Better World. Ho, ho. And it's about what happened with the syndemic and what's happening with the syndemic in general, but specifically for countries that I, whose healthcare systems I've experienced and where I've lived. So... United States, Britain, Colombia, and Mexico. And some of it is about what Rob Nixon called slow violence, which is not the sudden dramatic escalation of human tension that produces physical conflict, but is environmental despoliation and its impact. One of the key arguments of of this book, COVID Charter, A Better World, is that with zoonotic diseases, those that transfer between different animal species, including ourselves, it's pretty clear that capitalist meat and fashion industries are crucial to zoonotics, whether it's wet markets for animals or whether it is farms for the cultivation and slaughter of mink. So that work has certainly drawn upon my violence studies, even though the violence elements are more about other animals. In the future, I'm interested in further investigations of these questions of animal and human interaction. You know, getting back to sports, uh, where does horse racing fit? in the story of violence, particularly steeplechasing or things like the Grand National? Where does horse riding sit in all of this? Where does the domestication of the animal sit in all of this? Where does the mixture of loving animals and eating them sit? What are the, in inverted commas, human rights that currently do should or might apply to our animal relatives. As you know, there's a set of complicated legal debates going on, particularly in the global north, about everything from bullfighting through to whether or not our simian cousins should be in zoos. So I'm very interested in all those debates, and that arises from my concern with violence and the fact that Many of the debates going back to Bentham and Hume uh, and on to animal rights people today are about suffering and whether those who suffer should be protected from what ails them. So that's where I think I'm probably headed next, Dave.